By day two, this search and rescue mission turns into a missing person investigation. When Detective Hoke arrives at Rustler Park, Jeanette has been missing for roughly 24 hours, and too many things are simply not adding up. Jeanette had severe physical limitations that prevented her from going far, yet she disappeared in a really short time span in a restricted geographical area. Based on a formula an experienced search and rescue team used to plan their search, it was estimated that she couldn't have strayed further than 0.3 miles from where she was last seen. This formula, which had been proven to be accurate many times before, took into account Jeanette's physical limitations and the type of terrain at Rustler Park. And even though the search perimeter was far larger than that 0.3 mile radius, they found no trace of her. Her footsteps were nowhere to be seen and the dogs couldn't even track her scent, which is why detectives become convinced early on that Jeanette was not on that mountain. From The Labyrinth and Case File Presents, I'm Octavia McHenry. Listen to this interview they conducted with Jeanette's father. Because my wife only took about, you know, two minutes at the most. Then came outside, she was no longer there. Yeah, that's what's so amazing is, is, is such a, the short time period to be that gone, which, you know, really raises the specter of her getting in a vehicle. That time that the dogs were initially doing their, their scent tracks and what have you, it, everything would suggest that she was taken from there. And it just seems like right from the get-go, she wasn't in that area. And finally, Detective Hoke speaking with Jeanette's sister in those early days. No, I mean, okay. obviously, we, you know, you you guys have been looking forever, and we don't think that you, you know, just, you're not good at your job. So obviously somebody must have taken her. You know, and I want to be honest with you all, okay? Okay. That's our theory. We're thinking she's not even in that mountain yeah. or even remotely in that mountain. According to detectives, if Jeanette was not on that mountain, there are three possible scenarios. The first one is that Jeanette entered a stranger's vehicle and left. This could have been a person with good intentions that maybe believed Jeanette to be lost. Maybe Jeanette became disoriented, forgot where the RV was, and asked for help, as she'd done in the past. While she didn't have a cell phone herself, she knew her parents' phone numbers, and if someone gave her a phone, she probably would be able to dial their numbers. The only problem with that is that if it was a good Samaritan, they would have either taken her to the nearest town, nearest police station, or all the way home. Anyway, they would have put her in a position where she could contact. The second scenario is that Jeanette entered into the vehicle of an individual with bad intentions. For instance, a ransom kidnapping. However, it just seems to me this many days, contact would have been, at least initial contact would have been made to say, She's alive, you're going to pay, stand by for further information. Because you've got to remember, your main aim is to get money. You're not making money if they're just sitting someplace. And by the time that interview took place, it had already been four days since Jeanette was last seen. So if the intention wasn't to help out or to extort money, the other options are more sinister. Worst case scenario, someone took her um, to hurt her somehow, you know, meant, uh, you know, rape or thrill killing, or it could be, um, you know, a serial killer. It's a good target of opportunity. No one's around, grab this person. Just like I said, this is under worst case scenario. Um, those are definitely plausible. 
Uh, like I say, as the days go by, things like kidnapping for ransom start fading away because there'd be contact. Here's the problem with this theory, though. She's also a heavy woman, so to get her, getting her inside a car by, by the force would not be something easy. Now, certainly I wouldn't have heard anything inside the motorhome, but my wife would have heard something when she was in the bathroom with the door open, and she, did, she never heard any struggle or anything. And Jeanette's family doesn't believe she would have gotten into a stranger's car willingly. Once again, from the family's interviews with law enforcement. Let's just say that I drove up in a car and Janet's walking. Okay. And I pull up and I roll down the window and I say, would you like a ride? Uh-huh. Would she get in the car? No. 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 She would not. Unless they gave her the impression that they knew her or knew her parents and perhaps offered her a ride back to the motorhome. What would she do? Knowing my sister, I would think that she would start talking. No, uh, uh, no, thank you. Mm-hmm. What's your name or something uh-huh. like that? Sí. She will, she will talk. She will sí. ask questions. Como te llamas? Like, could that conversation, if I was conniving yes. enough, uh-huh. could I build her on her trust then and say, oh, "Okay, so you're from New Mexico. I can give you a ride if you're." If, if could she... that go? Could that roll into something like that? Well, we've, we've never seen that scenario, but um, in your I would. But if. If, if somebody, We're looking at all possibilities here, okay? It, right. Mm-hmm. So if somebody had told her, maybe, I know your parents, oh, I'm heading up there to the motorhome, uh, or offered her some food. She's used to seeing certain scenarios. She's used to seeing us camping. She is used to seeing other people with us camping. And a lot of times, she will make an assumption that we are camping with a group. Eduardo and Lydia both agree that there's another way Jeanette could have been persuaded by a stranger. One of Jeanette's greatest weaknesses because of her brain injury was food. Her favorite food was pizza. Pizza is a tool they use to bribe her within the family. Don't misbehave or you won't get any pizza, they would tell her. According to Eduardo, Jeanette would do anything for pizza. How well known is that? What? Oh, everybody knows that. In the church, anybody that knows In the church, they know pizza's the ultimate prize. You ask her what do you want to eat in the morning? Pizza. Darling, it's morning. I don't care, I want pizza. So if she's on the side of the road, I pull up and I say, hey, Janet, you want some pizza? Yep. She's in the she'll probably She'll probably do anything for pizza. But in that scenario, the perpetrator would have to have known Jeanette and her family. And so, during those early days where everything appears dark and anything is possible, Jeanette's parents and siblings put their minds together to think about who could have wanted to harm them and why. This is Oscar, Jeanette's brother. Were we a target of something? What if somebody's got a vendetta against us? I guess it's a possibility. It's impossible for every person to get along with everybody. You're always going to have some kind of friction with somebody. Sure, I went back several years to see if I had friction with somebody. There are people who I may not get along with. We don't talk or whatever. And I went back several years and all of us brainstormed like that. And they came up with at least one possible lead. It had to do with a group of people that left their church shortly before Jeanette disappeared. I guess you could call them dissidents. At the time, Eduardo was in charge of the Spanish-speaking branch of the Seventh-day Adventist Church in Deming. This particular group of people left because they didn't agree with the way he was running the church. I don't believe it should be so uh, strict. I'm a little bit more uh, liberal. I'm a a physician, I'm a doctor. Things need to make sense to me. Mm -hmm. And, And I just don't believe that those 
Old Testament rules should govern the church. Religion should not be a, a set of do's and don'ts to go to heaven. It should be a form of life. You can pledge anything, but if in your heart you're not, you're not doing the right things, then you're up in opposition to what God wants you. Kindness is what counts. Mm-hmm. When, when they depart, a lot of times they depart with, with the idea that in the name of the Lord, it's okay to do damage. But you'll be surprised what people do in the name of the Lord. We all know that most of the wars are done because of differences in, in religious opinions. And because of the connection with the congregation, these individuals could have potentially known where the Castrions were headed for the weekend. Talking with Detective Hoke about this possibility, Jeanette's mother breaks down into tears. My only hope is that if it was them, that they didn't hurt her. In particular, there was one individual that stood out. The day after Jeanette disappeared, he contacted her brother Fabian to see if he could be of any help. It felt to Fabian like he didn't really want to help, but rather, he was fishing to find out what was happening. But this scenario is far-fetched too. In this case, the perpetrator would have had to follow the family up to Rustler Park with the intention of finding the opportunity to isolate Jeanette without her parents watching. And there was no guarantee that that would happen. Not to mention, the windy 10-mile road up the mountain is a single-lane dirt road with plenty of switchbacks it wouldn't be difficult to spot a vehicle following you. So that leaves detectives with one other scenario, that the family is not being truthful. There is no evidence of foul play at Rustler Park, but there also doesn't seem to be any evidence that Jeanette was ever there. Did something happen on their way to Rustler Park, or did they fabricate the disappearance to hide something else? So they take a step back and try to find any evidence that can confirm that Jeanette made it up there. We don't even know if she was here. We're going off the word of mom and dad. The three of them didn't drive to Rustler Park directly from their home in Las Cruces. They had spent the previous night in Deming. But before leaving Deming to head to Rustler Park, in the late morning hours, they said they stopped at a Walmart, at the mechanic to get the RV checked, and at an IHOP restaurant for breakfast. We went to all these businesses in Deming in hopes of getting video of her. We did find video. It was at the IHOP. And I think it's date stamp, the time stamp, I mean, it is like 10 something in the morning, like 10, 10, 10, 15, where it shows the family walking in. When I say the family, it's Mr. Casarajon and Mrs. Casarajon, mom and dad, and Janet. And you could see even when she's walking in, she's very slow. And uh, like even borderline clumsy, you know? And they sit down and they eat and then they leave. There's no video of them getting into the motorhome and what have you. As far as Walmart goes, video surveillance was checked from 7 a.m. to 1 p.m., but doesn't confirm that the RV or any of the family members were there. As for the mechanic... They knew this mechanic. It was actually somebody they knew, not just a, a random place. We checked at that place, and he said, oh, they were here, yeah. we. In fact, you knew him by name pretty well. And we asked, do you remember ever seeing uh, their daughter with him? Oh, no, I don't recall none of that. The thing is, is that... We weren't even sure if if she even made it past Deming. As you may remember from the previous episode, it stated in the report that none of the witnesses present at Rustler Park can confirm Jeanette's presence up there. I mentioned Ranger Cox and Ranger Weaver already, 
But there was also two other groups of people camping there that day. Six men were camped at the loop above the Castrions, and a father and son with a white van across the meadow from them. All of these witnesses were questioned and all reported seeing just one man and one woman, which is probably why detectives say that her presence can't be confirmed at Rustler Park. But on closer inspection of the report, however, it seems to me that the physical description given by the father and the son with a white van of the female they saw fits Jeanette more than it does Lydia. They report seeing a woman that was short and heavyset with long black hair tied in a ponytail. Four years later, I tracked down this witness. His name is David Wilkinson, and he was camping with his adult son, Josh. There was a, a woman outside the motor home. The storage doors were open, and it looked like they had just arrived and were setting up. And she was, uh, she was outside, I believe, getting things out of one of the side bins. She looked over, saw us, you know, driving in. I kind of gave a, a little bit of wave, and my son did as well. And, and she gave a little wave back, you know, as we uh, had gone by. Uh, so you just saw one woman? Uh, at that point, yes. Do you remember if she was, if she had long hair or short hair, if she was heavy set or small or her age? I would have described her as a bit heavy set. Okay. Yes. Did she look like she was maybe in her 40s or would she have been more in her 60s? Oh, more forties. I I thought she was probably even maybe younger than that. I don't I don't know by the by the hair or something that you know. But like I said, we just drove by. It was a very quick look. But yes, definitely uh, a bit overweight, and I would have said no more than forty. I don't know. Although I didn't read him back his statement from two thousand fifteen, David Wilkinson didn't stray from that original statement. And the description of a heavy-set woman in her 40s with long hair matches Jeanette. Lydia, in her late 60s, had short hair and a petite frame. The following point is pure conjecture, but it's worth pointing out since it reflects the opinion of many of the people I spoke to. That is, why choose such a remote location that is difficult to access to have a get-together with a large group of people? Getting a 30-foot motorhome across 15 miles of single-lane dirt road with large rocks is no joke. The following is from the interview Detective Monroe did with Jeanette's father. How long is this vehicle? It's about 32 feet. Yeah, it's kind of a crazy road for... Yeah, but they, yeah. they have a limit of not more than 40. Yeah, 40. It was 40, 41 right yeah. on there. Yeah. No, I just... I get kind of weirded out on it just in my truck, so there's certain portions of it. It's straight down. Yes, yes, it is. To that, Eduardo replied that they like to live dangerously, that they enjoy adventure. This is from a conversation I had with Sergeant Tall Parker. Sergeant Parker, former Marine Corps, was on the SWAT team for 12 years and at the time of our interview, ran five detectives in the major crimes unit. In his spare time and off the clock, he also looked for Jeanette. And trying to get a 30-foot motorhome up that road. I mean, you've driven that road. Why? Well, There's got to sure. be other areas more accessible. Rustler Park is a semi-primitive campground with no running water and no cell service. Hardly a convenient place to meet with a large group of people. It also piqued my interest that Lydia chose to use the one restroom that was so far away from the campsite. 
One of the detectives points out on the report that the motorhome was equipped with a bathroom. If you're looking at the map I provided, Lydia ignored the restroom directly adjacent to their campsite, restroom number three, past restroom number two that was on the way to the fee box, and proceeded even further north to the most distant restroom, restroom number one. Fui al baño que estaba primero. I went to the first bathroom, but since there was a rock there, I figured that meant that we shouldn't go inside. So we went to the fee box, and from there, I went to the bottom bathroom. From the fee box is where Jeanette told me, I'm going to the motorhome. So Lydia explains that she assumed that restroom, restroom number two, was out of service because a large rock was blocking the door. It turns out the Forest Service employees kept rocks in front of the bathroom stalls to prevent the wind from blowing them open. But Lydia didn't know that. Back to the witnesses, though. What's interesting is that both groups separately recalled hearing screaming around 5 to 5.30 p.m., but they all reported that they couldn't understand what was being said. The time frame would have been well before Jeanette disappeared, unless that discrepancy is due once again to time zone differences. But the Tucson group of six said that around 8 p.m., Eduardo and Lydia drove their RV towards their campsite asking if they'd seen their missing daughter. And if that timeline is accurate, Jeanette's parents didn't ask for their help until one to two hours after Jeanette was lost. The father and son in the white van reported that around 7 p.m., they saw the Castrohans drive around in their RV. They saw them leaving their campsite and return a little while later. I asked David Wilkinson, and this time read him back portions of his statement. We were a little surprised that they would pack up and, and leave, and then all of a sudden, now they, they came back. Right, so you thought that they were leaving, and then you saw them drive back? Yes. The subjects did not talk to them or ask them for help looking for their daughter. Is that right? Right, and the, the couple in the motorhome never did stop at our camp or talk to, you know, talk to us or anything. They never asked you anything? No, they never did. We never had any, any contact with them at all. Next, detectives try to determine whether there were any suspicious vehicles at Rustler Park. Anyone that could have potentially removed Jeanette from the area. Nobody, including Eduardo and Lydia themselves, Recall seeing any cars during the 10-15 minutes or so that Jeanette and Lydia were walking to the fee box. What Eduardo remembers is that he saw a white pickup truck with a camper driving up to Long Park Road when he was already looking for his missing daughter. He stopped the vehicle, he said, and talked to a male and female in their 40s. He couldn't give any other details on the type of vehicle or its passengers other than the fact that the male driver had long hair. The vehicle with the uh, 40-ish couple in there, was that the white pickup? I think that was the fine white pickup. Okay. okay, do you remember approximately what time that was? Or how long you'd been well, searching? Well, by this time it was, was already dark. It was already dark? Yes. Okay. Thinking back, you wish you would have paid more attention to the cars, but again, I never think that somebody took Janet because she has gotten lost before. The group of six campers, on the other hand, recalled seeing a gray four-door sedan, possibly a silver Honda Civic with a sunroof, around 8.20 p.m. The vehicle was heading back down from the direction of Long Park and drove off. Out of these six, one of them has since passed away, and I tracked down four of the others. They're Jehovah's Witnesses, and are all friends through their church. Here's one of them, Mike Bonomo. 
do you recall the Honda Civic? Did you see it, or did someone else tell you yeah, about I, it? I, we, no, no, we, I, we saw it. We just saw a car leaving, you know, um, and... I remember the officers were asking us, like, oh, can you describe the driver? And we're like, no. You know, we just, again, it was just like a, a car leaving the campground. It had come from the, more from the south, and it just, you know, came down the road and left. So, you know, we didn't take any note of it. It was just a, just a car. I'm surprised you guys even remembered about it, you know, given that it had no significance at the time. You know, there were so few people or cars up there, you know, so you just notice a car leaving. And then, cause, and then people are asking us about it. And we're like, oh, what did you see? And we're like, oh, we saw one car leave. So, you know, right. like a and little silver car. Apparently, Matthew, you know, remembered even that the town. So somehow he must have associated the time with seeing that car. Yeah. You know, and of course, by that time, talking about the day after we're trying we're in our minds trying to review everything because now we remember that like wow this is significant you know somebody's missing to my knowledge neither of these vehicles or their drivers were ever identified in order to rule out any foul play by family members the castrions are given a vsa or voice stress analysis test and they all passed vsas are an investigative tool and like polygraphs Many believe they're not reliable because the outcome depends on who asks the questions, their level of experience, what the questions are, and so on. The following are from discussions I had with Detective Hoke, Sergeant Parker, and Sergeant Noland. And when we did those, none of them came up showing that any of them were being... Uh, Deceitful. Yeah, or not... Wasn't there some signs of a deception that was either Fabian or Oscar? They said he, Randy, Sergeant Wilson, who was the operator at that time, he did say that Oscar, that although he did not show deception, he kind of thought that he was odd in some way. But odd ain't something that we would put together as far as, okay, this needs to go in another direction at this time. VSAs and polygraphs and things like that are not visible. And there's a reason why. We can because those. people can fake them. Exactly. But can all those people fake them? No. Mom, dad, like, both brothers and sisters. They're just I'm not saying it can't happen. Right. It, it could happen. Can all of them fake it? That's possible. Hey, dad, dad and brother are doctors. God damn. But but mom, I don't I mom just does she's so fragile. They also requested all their phone records from the cell phone provider as well as the phone records of that one individual that had called them fishing about the status of Jeanette's disappearance. While I can see in my records that those requests are made to Verizon, I have never laid eyes on those phone records myself. I was told that nothing relevant to the investigation came out of that. Just to cover all avenues, I asked if they had looked into a possible life insurance policy on Jeanette, and they told me they hadn't found any active policies. Except, were you able to verify that there was no life insurance policy in Mexico either? That I couldn't get into because if if there's something in Mexico, I have no way of going into right. there and finding that out. Uh, I have no authority in that in another country to do that. They also checked border crossing records. We tried to get um, outbound plate readers from uh, Columbus, New Mexico to see if, because that's not far, where you could have taken a body and go through the port of entry. They never had anything happening. None of the vehicles registered to the family members seemed to have crossed the border around the time Jeanette disappeared. 
During their interviews with the family, detectives tried to address some of the inconsistencies and misunderstandings that occurred between them and search and rescue. One of these is the issue of the visibility from the side view mirror. If you recall in the previous episode, I told you that two people heard Eduardo say that he saw Jeanette walk south towards Long Park, but did nothing to stop her. Well, in his interview at the sheriff's office, Jeanette's father clarifies that he meant that if she had gone that way, he would have seen her. I said, even if she would have gone straight, I still would have seen her on the mirror. Okay, so seeing her in the mirror was a possibility, not... I, I received information that you had seen her in the mirror. Okay, I was at that mirror. Right. I was looking to see her. looking, were, yes, and if she had, you would have seen her. Of course. Yeah, okay, well, that's, that's why we're trying to clarify. We've we got so much information. And yet, when I was up at Rustler Park with detectives, Sergeant Tal Parker pointed out something that didn't make sense to me at the time, but does now. Yeah. You see, you, you were saying something about the yeah. RV would have been facing this way. Yeah, because they came they came and turned around right. up there. And then parked there. And then they pulled in didn't, here and they all got out. Mr. Castrohan at one point say that he, had, if he was on his phone. He was Looking the through the rear view mirrors. mirrors. Well, then he's, he's facing the wrong way. Yeah, he'd be looking back that way. Yeah. Based on the way the Castrions drove into the park, the motorhome should have been facing east. Yet, if Eduardo was looking out of his side view mirror towards the fork in the road Jeanette and Lydia took to walk to the fee box, it would have been facing west. The last major point of interest to the people investigating in this case has to do with Oscar's actions the day after Jeanette disappeared. On Saturday, June 20th, Oscar left Rustler Park in the Volkswagen Jetta and returned shortly after with a white pickup truck. I think it spooked him mm-hmm. when the DOC dog hit on this car. And he got, he had to get that car out of there in the event somebody else noticed something or found something else. That was Sergeant Parker. Sergeant Parker and Sergeant Noland thought that was suspicious because maybe Oscar was trying to conceal that vehicle because the dogs took an interest in it. A supplement report by Sergeant Parker says that, in addition, Oscar was stopped by Sheriff Walter of Hidalgo County twice on that day. The stops were approximately 15 minutes apart. Sheriff Walter noted that the first time, Oscar was driving a black four-door sedan, and the second time, a white Toyota pickup. Both stops were for excessive speed. So the sheriff then tells him, well, slow down. This is when he's heading that way, right? Slow down, go to the speed limit. So then later, uh, he's speeding back. And the sheriff stops him again. Now he's in that, in that Toyota. And he says, oh, it's you again. But when I asked Oscar, this is what he said. He didn't stop me for speeding. He was checking speed, but he didn't stop me for speeding. And I told him, you know what, we lost our sister. And he kind of gave me some tips and tricks at that point in time. Oscar told me he was the one who stopped and talked to the sheriff to inform him that his sister went missing in the area. And he added that he only stopped once. He also explained that he got the pickup because it was easier to maneuver in the mountains while looking for Jeanette. Asked why he didn't just take the four-wheel drive in the first place, he said he was getting some work done on it back at home. So I said, I'm just going to go up with the car. I didn't know that it was this terrain or much less that I would have to be looking for a lost sister. He asked a friend from Las Cruces to drive his pickup up to Lordsburg where they met and they exchanged vehicles. He also told me that his old Jetta had been recalled and he no longer has it. No radio logs are available on Sheriff Walter's traffic stops, and no in-vehicle camera was installed on his vehicle at the time. 
I tried getting a hold of him for months. When I finally managed to speak with him, the interview wasn't recorded, but the sheriff confirmed what Oscar said, that he didn't stop him for speeding. Which raises the question why, then, the sheriff deputies were under the impression he had been stopped for excessive speed and noted that in the report. When all is said and done, my impression is that while search and rescue suspected Jeanette's family had an involvement in her disappearance, detectives focus more on a crime committed by a stranger. From the interviews that Monroe and I had the following day up in Douglas, it, I, we just didn't pick up that the family had anything to do with this. Okay, if there is foul play involved here, somebody picked her up on that road in between that point and this curve to come in here. Which goes back to a crime of opportunity. And right. I, and this is one of those locations where, wow. I mean, the, a crime of opportunity way up here at 9,000 feet altitude on a one-way road. An 18-mile single-lane road. Yeah. Coming up next on The Labyrinth. Certainly what I do know is that in fear and under pressure, people make some very bad choices. And I have to say Occam's razor is normally the principle I operate from. The simplest explanation is normally the most likely. We still can't place her on that mountain. And that bothers me the most in this scenario that we haven't got an independent person saying she was there. And, and apparently a lot of people in their community knew that. Everybody who knew Janet knew that about her. So. I have to say it's one of the most ridiculous things I've ever heard. <laughs> and I've heard a lot of things across my career. 